A man was telling his neighbor about his latest purchase. He said, I just bought myself a brand new hearing aid. It cost me $10,000, but it's the latest technology. It works perfectly. Really, said the neighbor. What kind is it? The guy said, oh, it's 12.30. Do you know what it feels like to have unmet expectations? Well, today I have a confession to make. A confession that may be shocking to some of you, but I want to be honest with you. For many years, I have struggled with the Christmas season. For many years, I've had to brace myself to endure the Christmas season. Now, I'm not proud of this. I'm not happy about it. I'm not boasting about it. I'm simply telling you the truth. Now, you should know that this was not always the case. When I was a child, Christmas was my absolute favorite time of the year. When I was a child, Christmas gave me goosebumps just thinking about it. Now, as an adult, just thinking about Christmas gives me nosebleeds. I'm serious. I'm being literal here. A few years ago, the stress of Christmas sent me to the emergency ward. Now, how could I, an ordained Christian pastor, not enjoy this time of year? I think it's linked to the pressures that come with Christmas. There's the pressure of calendar expectations, all the gatherings that we have to go to. They're wonderful in themselves, parties and banquets and so on, but they add up on your schedule. Our family schedule when our children were young was incredible. We would have our Christmas Eve service, then we'd go home, wake up the next morning, the children would open their gifts, then we'd pile them all into the family van, drive three hours to my parents and and have a Christmas celebration there, then we'd drive three hours home again. The next day, we'd pack the kids in the van, drive three, four hours to Jan's family, spend the day with them, drive three or four hours home again, then have to wake up the next day and go to work. It was exhausting. There's the pressure of the church expectations. The church budget comes to a conclusion around the Christmas season. So you're always tense. Are we going to make budget? Are we not going to make budget? How are the finances? There's the teaching topics. Uh, Every Christmas season, I've been doing this for 40 years. It's hard to come up with new ideas after 40 years when it comes to Christmas. There's the pressure of gifts, choosing the right gifts, not forgetting anybody. There's the pressure of personal finances, having to pay for all of these gifts. There's the pressure of the constant crowds everywhere you go, malls, streets, parking lots. Now, of course, none of these pressures have anything to do with the core of Christmas, which is the day we set aside to celebrate the birth of Jesus of Nazareth. Nonetheless, the ugly truth is, years ago, I came to the realization that I no longer enjoyed this time of year. And I came to the realization that I needed to do something about it. And it was while listening to a sermon that a flame of hope was rekindled within me. The preacher had a great idea. He suggested a way to refocus and simplify a life in the middle of the chaos that has become Christmas. And the kernel of his idea grew into this December sermon series here at Broadway, a series we're calling Christmas Triggers. Now, the goal of this series is simple. In the middle of the chaos and the consumerism, we're going to create a way to remain focused on what really matters. And we're going to accomplish this goal by choosing three common visuals, three common objects that we're going to constantly be seeing over the next few weeks. A credit card, a wrapped gift, and a nativity scene. Chances are you're going to become very familiar with these three things during the month of December. So, for each of these objects, we're going to create and attach a different, unique, one-sentence truth. A truth that will be triggered in our hearts and minds 
every time one of these objects appears before our eyes. We're beginning today with the classic nativity scene. Nativity means birth. It's the classic nativity scene portraying events that are recorded in Luke's gospel, Luke's first century biography of the life of Jesus. Let's read Luke's account together. It's the classic Christmas story. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Don't be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those who on whom his favor rests. Well, when the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. Wow, that is quite the story. It's a story that has been told for thousands of years. It's a famous story. It's an incredible story. But is it a true story? This is four-year-old Stevie Long on your screen. Stevie is a fan of the Power Rangers action heroes. He's got the costume on in the picture. When Stevie is dressed in his Power Ranger costume with his plastic sword in his hand, he is convinced that he actually turns into a real Power Ranger. A few years ago, in Durham, South Carolina, Stevie's belief may have saved some lives. A gun-toting robber forced his way into Stevie's family's apartment, pointing his gun at two adults and a one-year-old girl inside, demanding that they lie down on the floor. Enter Stevie. During the robbery, Stevie sneaked into his bedroom, dressed himself in his Power Ranger costume, and armed himself with his plastic sword. Then he bolted from his room, ran towards the armed robber, and with his sword swinging in the air, Stevie shouted, Get away from my family! Apparently, Stevie freaked out the robber because the guy ran from the building. Stevie's mother told the reporters and the police that he actually thinks he's pretty intimidating in his red and black mask and his suit filled with foam muscles. To quote her directly, she said, he fully believes that he morphs into a Power Ranger. Are followers of Jesus like little Stevie Long? 
Are we simply people who have convinced ourselves into believing something that really is not true? As I'm driving around the city of Vancouver through our neighborhoods and my own local neighborhood, I see some things. I see on people's lawns a Santa, a Frosty the Snowman. I see um, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, a bunch of elves. I even see the odd nativity scene. And as I'm seeing all of this, some very deep thoughts pass through my mind. Thoughts like, who has the time to put all of this together on their lawns? And where do these people store these displays in the summertime? But my deepest thought is probably this. Does our culture equate the nativity scene with a supernatural Santa, a talking snowman, magical flying reindeer, and a bunch of elves that are in serious need of a union? I mean, does the average 21st century Vancouverite place Jesus on par with a bunch of fairy tale figures, characters that don't actually exist? I recently came across a fascinating mathematical study from an engineer. Let me quote from his research. He said this, putting aside the fact that there are no known species of reindeer that can fly, there are approximately 2 billion children in the world. But since Santa doesn't appear to handle the vast majority of Muslim, Hindu, Jewish, or Buddhist children, that reduces his workload to approximately 378 million children, or roughly 91.8 million homes. Now, since Santa only has 31 hours of Christmas to work with, thanks to the different time zones and the rotation of the earth, that works out to 822.6 visits per second. Now, if every one of those 91.8 million homes were to put out a single chocolate chip cookie and an 8-ounce glass of 2% milk, the total intake for the night would be approximately 20,650,000,000 calories. Now, since 3,500 calories adds one pound, Santa would gain 2,950 tons. Not only that, but Santa's sleigh would be moving at 650 miles per second or 3,000 times the speed of sound. Now, assuming that each child as well gets nothing more than a medium-sized Lego set, the sleigh would be carrying 321,300 tons. Not counting Santa, who is invariably described as overweight. Now, 320,000 tons traveling at 650 miles per second creates enormous air resistance and heat friction. So the reindeer and the sleigh would be vaporized within four one-thousandths of a second. So the bottom line is this. The Santa story has some serious credibility issues, according to this engineer. Now, what if the Jesus story was placed under the same level of scrutiny? Would the Jesus story wilt under the glaring lights? The truth is that the Jesus story has been under glaring lights for 2,000 years. And unlike the Santa legend, the Jesus story does not wilt under the heat of reality. That's why I want to introduce you to our first Christmas trigger, our first memorable truth tied to a common Christmas visual. I'm calling it our nativity trigger. Starting today, I am suggesting that every time you see a nativity scene, you should quietly repeat to yourself the following statement. That really happened in human history. When it comes to the person of Jesus Christ, the child at the center of the Christmas story, we're not dealing with some fanciful story or some homespun legend. Every time you see a nativity scene, remind yourself of the truth 
That really happened in human history. Unlike Santa, Frosty the Snowman, and Rudolph, Jesus actually lived. Have you ever visited the birthplace of some historical figure and suddenly been impressed with the reality that this famous person actually lived and walked where you are now walking? I was raised in Stratford, Ontario. If you've ever been to Disneyland, Stratford is a virtual Shakespeare land. Instead of Mickey Mouse, though, we had Willie Shakespeare. There's a festival theater along the Avon River with world-famous actors playing Shakespearean roles. People come from all over the world to visit Stratford. The streets and public spaces are named with Shakespearean themes. The schools are even named after Shakespearean characters. My first six years, I attended Avon Public School. For grades seven and eight, I attended King Lear Junior High School. I mean, this makes the headlines in the Stratford sports section interesting at times. King Lear crushes Romeo. Suffice it to say, I grew up saturated in William Shakespeare. But the reality of Shakespeare's life never really dawned on me until I visited Stratford-upon-Avon in England. It was while visiting in William Shakespeare's actual home that reality hit me. This guy, Shakespeare, really lived in human history. Growing up, I had heard stories of incredible events that took place in Dunkirk, France. In the early days of World War II, the German army was making great gains on the European continent. At one point, they cornered the Allied forces in a town called Dunkirk along the coast of France, forcing one of the most gigantic evacuations in human history. Between May 27th and June 4th, 338,000 troops were evacuated by sea from Dunkirk. 933 ships took place in the operation. 236 of them were destroyed. 108,000 troops were captured or killed on that beach. For decades, this was a story that veterans wearing crumpled hats and well-worn medals used to tell me in school assemblies every November. Then, I actually visited the town of Dunkirk myself. I strolled along the streets, I read the memorials, and I walked alone along the windswept dunes on that beach. Staring out into the waters of the English Channel, the sobering truth settled upon me. This really happened in human history. All my life, I had heard the story of Jesus Christ. I had heard of his birth, his miracles, his teachings. I had heard of his travels in Galilee, Jerusalem, and up and down the Jordan River Valley. His travels made for great stories. And then, decades ago, I found myself in Israel for the first time, walking the places whose names I had only read about. I sat on the slopes by the Sea of Galilee where Jesus spoke the Sermon on the Mount. I stood at the home of the Apostle Peter's mother-in-law. I stood on the stone floor built upon the remains of the synagogue where Jesus preached in Capernaum. I stood, touched, prayed at the temple wall in Jerusalem. I walked the very steps to the temple that Jesus once walked. I wandered through the Garden of Gethsemane. I drove to Bethlehem, past the hills and fields where the shepherds tended their flocks. I stood at the place where historians agree the original nativity took place. I stood at the location of the crucifixion. I stood at the location of the empty tomb. And the reality of it all sank into my mind at an even deeper level. That really happened in human history. 
Many years ago, I was at the Royal Ontario Museum in Toronto for a Dead Sea Scrolls exhibit. A Jewish professor traveling with the scrolls made a presentation, and I will never forget an angry woman shouting out to the Jewish professor after he had made some comments about Jesus. This woman shouted from the back of the room, Why are you even talking about this man, Jesus, as though he actually existed? The Jewish professor responded, You don't have to believe his claims, madam, but you cannot deny his existence. Jesus was a man of history. Dr. Edwin Yamauchi of Miami University, a recognized author, scholar, and a leading expert in ancient history, wrote this. He said, We have better historical documentation for Jesus than for, than for the founder of any ancient religion. One expert documented 39 ancient non-biblical sources that support and validate more than 100 facts concerning Jesus' life. So, the historical evidence is undeniable. Jesus really did walk the earth. That is why the next time you see a nativity scene, you can take a mental pause, look at that snapshot in time, and say to yourself, that really happened in human history. Now, having said that, history not only declares that Jesus lived, history also records the fact that Jesus died. Now, the manner of Jesus' death is a matter of historical record. Regarding Jesus of Nazareth, the first century Jewish historian Josephus wrote this. I quote him. He said, Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die. First century Roman historian Tacitus wrote, and I quote him, Christus was put to death by Pontius Pilate, procurator of Judea in the reign of Tiberius. So the historical evidence is unavoidable. Jesus really did die on a cross. The death of Jesus is not some legend, some myth, or some fairy tale invented centuries later. No, the crucifixion of Jesus is a fact of the historical record. But why did Jesus die? Well, Jesus died for his claims, his claims to be the Messiah, his claims of divinity, but he died for you and for me. Jesus died to forgive us and cleanse us and pardon us of our sin. Jesus died to pay my moral debt and your moral debt. That's why Jesus died to forgive us and offer us the, the forgiveness, offer us a new life, offer us eternal life. Have you accepted this gift? If not, I'm going to give you an opportunity in just a moment to do that very thing. The historical evidence is unavoidable. Jesus really did die on a cross under the authority of a Roman governor in the first century. So once again, repeat with me out loud wherever you are, our nativity trigger. That really happened in human history. Now, history not only records that Jesus lived and that Jesus died, but history also records that Jesus rose again. Now, many people seem to think that the resurrection is something that you just have to believe by faith, something you believe without any evidence, maybe believe in spite of the evidence. Nothing could be further from the truth. The resurrection of Jesus is an event that is attested to by the historical record. And every theory over the last 2,000 years that attempts to deny the resurrection stumbles over the historical facts that cannot be ignored. Now, I teach a course here at Broadway called Skeptic, where I do my best to answer some of the most frequently asked questions when it comes to the Christian faith. 
I'll be teaching it live once again this coming February. Check out the dates on our website and come and join us. It's a free course. One of the topics I address in Skeptic is, what's the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus? In other words, what's the evidence that Jesus rose from the dead? In that teaching, I debunk every attempt over the last 2,000 years that deny the resurrection of Jesus. Now, I don't have to have time right now to go through all of the theories today, but for now, I'm just going to touch on what I'll call the top three. First, there's the wrong tomb theory. This is the theory that says, on Easter Sunday morning, the women went to the wrong tomb. They turned left instead of right and went to a wrong tomb. This theory doesn't explain the historical facts surrounding the resurrection appearances, nor does it explain why the authorities didn't just point them to the right tomb, to the tomb that actually held Jesus' body in it. Nor does it explain the historical fact that the authorities attempted to explain why the tomb was actually empty. That's why this theory is not proposed by scholars today. Then there's the theft theory. This was the official story that the disciples somehow stole the body. Well, this theory doesn't explain the historical facts surrounding the numerous resurrection appearances that Jesus made to his followers, nor does it explain the historical facts surrounding the changed lives of his disciples. I mean, if his disciples stole his body and then made up this lie that he rose from the dead, it doesn't explain while they gave the rest of their lives to spread this truth all over the world. It doesn't explain why many of them died with this truth, died because of this truth. And what did they gain by spreading this lie? They didn't go on a book tour. They didn't go on Oprah. They didn't make money. Many of them lost their lifestyles, lost their living as they went out and preached the gospel and died, many of them, because of the gospel. That's why this theory is not proposed by scholars today. It just doesn't fit the facts. And then thirdly, there's the hallucination theory. This is the theory that Jesus' followers just hallucinated that he rose from the dead. They so wanted it to be true, they made their minds believe it was true. Well, this theory doesn't fit with the historical facts surrounding the empty tomb. I mean, if Jesus' followers were hallucinating, all the authorities had to do was point them to the tomb, roll the stone away, show Jesus' dead body in the tomb, and that would stop all the hallucinating. Nor does this theory fit with the scientific facts surrounding the nature of hallucinations. I mean, hallucinations are personal. They're not shared. I can have a hallucination, you can have a hallucination, but we can't network our hallucinations, let alone 500 people at the same time. That's why this theory is not proposed by scholars today. There's more theories, including the theory that Jesus had an unknown twin brother, but you'll have to come to skeptic to hear about that one. Suffice it to say, the historical evidence is inescapable. Jesus really did rise from the dead. Once again, let's pause, take a moment to ponder this snapshot in time, the nativity scene, and repeat today's nativity trigger with me. That really happened in human history. Remember Stevie Long, little guy who thought he was a Power Ranger? We began today by asking ourselves a simple question. Are followers of Jesus just a bunch of Stevie Longs? Have we just convinced ourselves to believe something that isn't actually true? Whenever you see a nativity scene this Christmas, you can now answer that question with clarity. This is not some myth or fable or legend. That really happened in human history. 
The ones who are denying reality are not the Christ followers of our world. The ones who are denying reality are those who are choosing to ignore who Jesus is and what Jesus did. Jesus lived. Jesus died. Jesus rose from the dead. That really happened in human history. And it really happened so that you can have eternal life. So how are you choosing to respond to the facts of history? Your response, the choice that you make, will determine your eternal destiny. Let's pray together as we conclude today. We thank you, Lord, that you loved us so much that you stepped into human history. You stepped into time and space as the person, Jesus of Nazareth. You lived, you died, you rose from the dead, and now you offer us the gift of forgiveness and eternal life. Thank you for that. That really happened in human history. And now your spirit is alive today in our lives, supernaturally changing and transforming us and giving us life. If you're watching me today and you've not yet accepted this gift, I wanna give you the opportunity to do that right now. Pray this with me. God, I acknowledge my rebellion. I acknowledge my sin. I've turned my back on you and your design for my life. I don't wanna live that way any longer. So I ask you to come into my life. Forgive me. I accept your gift of forgiveness and eternal life. Now change me from the inside out. Begin to transform me from this moment forward. By the authority of the resurrected Jesus, I pray this. Amen. If you just prayed that prayer with me, congratulations, you are now a follower of Jesus. And the best advice I can give you is to text the number on the screen right now. One of our pastoral staff will text you back. Now, don't worry, we're not tricking you. We're not gonna spam you. We're not gonna harass you in any way. We're simply gonna respond to your text with an offer to help you in any way that we can. Once again, thanks for joining us at Broadway Church. I hope you'll be with us next week as we continue in our Christmas Trigger series.